Sober Experiment podcast by Be Sober. This season is sponsored by Luna, who offer holistic therapy courses that you can study from the comfort of your own home. Please visit their website www.lunacourses.com for more information. I'm Alex, one half of the Sober Experiment. And I'm Lisa, the other half. Morning, Lisa. Morning, Alex. Oh, you've really <laughs> thrown me now. Right, we've done this about five times and we never, ever do the intro five times. It just doesn't happen, right? So it started off with us going, hi, like we usually do, and laughing, like we usually do. Then Lisa gave me my full name. Then I nicked her line. Then she had the cheek to nick my line after complaining <laughs> that I nicked her line. So, yeah, um, we hope you're all right, everybody. <laughs> um, no, you, that's an intro. Yeah, that is a bit of an intro. But, um, yeah, today we've got Josh Connolly, who is an Accor ambassador on here. And honestly... I know that I said I will not say this, but it genuinely was one of my favourites. <laughs> right. As we move through the podcast, you're going to hear um, a little bit of a burr at the end of it where Lisa told me to tell Josh <laughs> that it was one of my favourites because, private joke, I'd said I wouldn't say it anymore. So I did. But I said it in like a really sarcastic way. <laughs> and then Lisa went, oh, I don't believe you. Oh, don't. I feel awful about this because <laughs> I knew you said it in a sarcastic way. So I was trying to say that it didn't sound genuine. But then in that, in that whole sentence, I feel like I kind of like... Told Josh you want the favourite. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it very well could have been your favourite. But like, and I also made you sound ingenuine and made it sound like Josh wasn't the favourite. And he put, do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I just hated it all. And I'm not <laughs> editing it out because I can't because that is the end of the podcast. So basically, just to clarify, I did say it in a kind of, oh, Josh, genuinely, 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 you are my favourite. In a kind of humorous slash sarcastic way. And I insulted both of you at the same time without even meaning to. But she didn't mean to. What she meant was the way I'd said it didn't sound genuine because it wasn't. But yeah, not Josh. He genuinely was. <laughs> I can't say genuinely any more times in this podcast, but he was one of our favourites. It's such a good podcast, isn't it? It's so good. And I think what makes it amazing... I'm not making a line. She's looking at me really funny. <laughs> ..is that it really does come from three different perspectives and we all react and do things so differently that I think it, so many different people will relate to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I do feel like I've just had a therapy session, so thank you, Josh, for that. Well, I'm saying thank you. I'm just going to go and hide under my pillow for a day now. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say that this intro has also been therapy for Lisa because now she's clarified what she actually meant. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So, hi, everybody. Uh, Lisa and I are really pleased to have with us Josh Connolly, who is an ACOA ambassador. How are you, Josh? I'm um, very good. Very excited to have the conversation with you two today. Do you know what? We've been really looking forward to this. And I, I'm not allowed to say I'm excited I, about I, it. Not, I didn't notice that you said, did you say please then? Or? But, uh, looking forward to looking it. Looking forward to it. I'm not allowed to say we're really excited, but I am going to say it. We're really excited to talk to you today. <laughs> <laughs> At the end, Josh, she'll tell you that um, you're her favourite. Right. <laughs> I'll yeah, tell yeah. you now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll still take it as well. Yeah, I'll still yeah, take yeah, it, yeah, even yeah, though I know yeah. you say it every time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to. It's just that every single time we go through something, I, I always end with a, 
wow that was amazing (laughs) I, I do genuinely feel that about every single guest that comes on they tell a story and I think wow that is incredible. So both of us have been um, your show. And yeah, it's our turn to grill you, I think, this time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And obviously we're doing our Nicola training at the moment, which you're part of, and we're both really enjoying that. That's, that's um, a unique experience, which we'll talk more about at another time when we do a podcast. We've just own. used 15 minutes of this podcast talking about that. Oh, fair, yeah. Yeah, that is true. So... We'll start off, if you don't mind, by just taking you back and asking you what actually brought you to being sober. What brought me to being sober? So I got sober when I was 24 years old. uh, And at that stage of my life, my drinking had sort of got um, well out of hand. Uh, I was, I wasn't like an every single day drinker. Uh, but only only so that I wasn't an alcoholic, right? So I would always literally make sure that I didn't drink on a Wednesday. Uh, and I, I got to the point where I pretty much drank every other day, uh, but I sort of would always keep one day free. And by the end of it, by the way, that day was only free because my body would literally just reject the alcohol anyway. But that that free day meant that I was an alcoholic. Uh, and, I, you know, I reached a stage where my life had fallen apart. I was, like I said, 24 I'd had a mortgage. I got a mortgage when I was 18 years old. I had progressed in my job. Um, I was a transport manager for, for a manufacturing company, but my life was a mess. I was um, nine and a half stone. So I was five stone lighter than what I am now. I was living on a, on a fold out bed in my mum's living room. I was 17,000 pounds in debt and I'd had enough. And though I don't believe I would have stopped if I didn't have children, I also couldn't tell you that I stopped because I had children. Uh, although that's probably what I used to say, I stopped because I didn't know what else to do. I knew I was very close to the end drinking in terms of reaching a stage where I was going to end it all. I was going to like literally either drink myself to death very purposefully or or, or take my life in another way. Um, And I met the the landlord of the pub that I used to drink in was an ex-compulsive gambler who had stopped gambling. And basically he sort of had taken me under his wing and uh, after a conversation with him, staying up all night, talking about the ways that I drank and what it was doing to me, it was the 14th of May, 2012. Uh, I woke up and I've not touched alcohol again since. So that's how I stopped. That's where sort of where I reached the point of stopping. Um, but it's been a bit of a journey since then as well. <laughs> Did you use any kind of 12-step program or anything like that to get sober or was it just done off your own back with the help from your friend? So I went to AA originally uh, and I used um, I used that for quite a number of years going to, I did meetings and every, you know, very regularly. Um, certainly the 12 steps itself, the actual program was really beneficial for me, um, certainly in the early stages. But I think sort of in the last, in the second half of my journey, uh, I've had to do other things. I've had to build on that and use, um, look at myself deeper, really. But but yeah, it was 12-step fellowships that I used originally. Yeah. And, and obviously I've heard you talk about this before, but for the, for the benefit of people who are listening and watching our podcast, you actually had quite a lot of um, deep-rooted issues with your mental health before you got to this stage. Can you talk about them a little bit? So when I stopped drinking originally, 
everything came flooding back. All my emotions, all my feelings that I'd ever been escaping from and, uh, and running away from came flooding back. I didn't really understand them though. So I didn't know that's what was happening. I just felt deep pain. I was having severe panic attacks. Um, like I would get halfway around Asda and have to just run out of there, leave my shopping in there and get out because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. I thought it was going to pass out. I thought there was something wrong with me. Um, and you know, I was nine months sober. So, uh, I had nine months without any drink and then I seriously planned to take my own life. So I uh, stopping drinking. I always say like, it took me nearly 15 years to drink myself to death. It took me nine months to sober myself to death nearly. Um, and I planned to take my own life and I went to see my kids, uh, for one last time. And because I knew I was going to die, the past became irrelevant. I was no longer worried about the future. And for the first time ever, I was free of all that stuff that was hampering me and I was present with my kids in a way that I'd never experienced. And I had a, like a real realization of, wow, this is what life is supposed to be about. I remember cuddling my daughter and feeling it in a way I'd never felt. Uh, my son going down the slide and when he got to the bottom, he looked at me and I realized how much he needed me and I changed my mind. But I think more importantly than changing my mind, I realized at that stage that for me, alcohol had never been my problem. Alcohol was a reaction to my problem. Um, and, and by removing alcohol, you, you didn't remove my problem. Um, you, it gave me an opportunity to, to, to solve my problem or to start looking at my, 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 my real problem. Uh, but the, the drinking itself was a symptom or a reaction to the problem. And then I guess that's the journey that I've been on since then has been about discovering what those issues are um and and kind of making sense of all of that and he doing that healing work do you kind of talk openly with your children about your experiences and if the whatever the answer well if the answer is yes how do you do that if the answer is no do you plan to do yeah so i talk to all of my children not well so my youngest two are uh four and two and they were like they've never known me i was sober for quite a while before they were born so it's not something I've spoken to them about. Um, I will as they get older, but like my eldest daughter's 14. Um, I've got boys who are eight and nine and my other daughter's 13. So I talk very openly about it with them. I think um, children are very intuitive. So I can pretend if I want that they don't know what's going on. My children know when I'm struggling. Yeah. I can pretend they don't, but they do. So for me, I think it's more confusing for children to spin them a line of what, no matter what age they are. Um, so I'm very open with them all of the time. Even like my four-year-old daughter, when she senses I'm struggling, I, I can, I know she can sense it. So I let her know that what, you know, I can, you know, you can feel that I'm struggling a little bit and I'm struggling and I'll explain it to her in a way that makes sense. I think the apathy and the kind of suppression of that is a, is a huge problem. So I'm as open as I possibly can be um, with all of my children, yeah. And like my older children, I've done work in their schools. So I've gone in and delivered talks at my daughter's school. So they've been in there. So they know it. I mean, they roll their eyes often and go, oh, <laughs> one of dad's, this is dad's talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I sit them down and I go, let's, let's talk about this. This is driven. And, you know, they sort of roll their eyes at it. But um, yeah, I'm very open with them about it. 
we've both found that our kids are hugely supportive of what we do, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. And, and for you, especially, your children form a big part of your story that's slowly unraveling, don't they? <laughs> yes, you do, a very big part. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into that one right now. No, we don't have to go into it, but I think the point is that, like, my kids, if I went in their school, by the way, I don't know how they'd react. Yours, my, my youngest, she's the only one who is at school and she has begged me not to speak to any of her um, teachers or anything like that. Um, I had an experience, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, about um, when I'd stopped drinking and Olivia had said at school to one of her teachers, they were talking about podcasts. She said, oh, my mum does a podcast. And she was like, oh, what about it? And she said, oh, she does it about alcohol. And the teacher kind of stopped what she was doing and was like, oh, that must be so difficult for her. And Olivia, like, came back and was like, oh, my teachers think you're an alcoholic, mum. Because she told them. So that's when I was like, I'm going to go into your school. And like, no, no, please don't, please don't. Yeah. No, they, 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 look, I think they're the greatest teachers. And I, to be honest with you, I think a lot of children that have experienced some of the things that perhaps our children have experienced, the teachers would do well to just sit down and listen to them, oh, and listen to their, yeah. to their viewpoint. And I think, uh, and, and it's not to say that the teachers that don't are bad teachers. I just think children see things very clearly. They've got a curiosity that we lose as adults and they'll say things quite straight as they are. I remember being at... Um, like a, a holiday park for a holiday a couple of years ago, two or three years ago. And they did, you know, like they get the adults on stage and they do uh, like competitions and stuff like that. Well, one of the things, one of the competitions was to go round and like neck a, a certain person's drink and all this. And they, the kids were trying to get me up and they hadn't explained what the competition was going to be. And they didn't get me up. And then Reggie, my little boy at the time, he was probably six at the time. He went, oh, lucky, lucky we didn't get you up there, Dad. Look, it's all about alcohol. Oh, and then I said, do you think, do you not think it's strange that we come to these places and I don't drink? And my eldest daughter flippantly and very straightly just went, no, I think it's weird that all these other adults that come here think that they have to have alcohol to have fun. Yeah. Right? And, and you think, yeah, she's just seen it because, you know, since she was six years old, I haven't drank and everywhere we've gone, I'm still fun. Yeah. I'm still up and about and I'm doing all the dancing and getting involved in, but I'm not drinking. So I think, you know, they learn a heck of a lot um, and they should be listened to more. Yeah. Oh, definitely. A lot of the kind of services, not only teachers, I mean, as you already know, I my background is in teaching and I've only recently stepped out of it in the last 12 months. And teachers, police, nurses, you know, prison officers just need to understand sometimes where certain emotions from children come from. I mean, I've literally had chairs thrown across the room, not at me, but just in pure frustration. And looking back, it's right, get out, get out of my classroom, get, you're not going to behave like that. And nobody sat that young person down and gone, what's going on? Yeah. What's going, that person's gone away and still not been heard. Yeah, yeah. These are all just symptoms of, yeah. of other things, aren't they? You know, like young people's drug use is a symptom of something much deeper. Yeah, yeah, it always is. And schools are like... I do a lot of work in schools, right? And a lot of the stuff I do is around that kind of throwing the chair stuff because I was the boy that would throw the chair, right? Um, and, and, you know, and I'm trying to get the message across that 
behavior acting out right is simply acting out what 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 they don't have the words to be able to vocalize right um and i think there's so much of that going on in schools um and you know a traumatized young person doesn't look like the pictures that we often see online which is like a dirty little child with their hands on their head and their head and their knees right and we're all very comfortable with a traumatized child looking like that because we can go oh look at the poor traumatized child we can help this child we can make it better for them traumatized children don't look like that traumatized children look like what we stick on the front page of the paper and call an asbo and all look at and go disgusting yeah go into any local Facebook page, yeah, and you'll see a load of adults shaming a load of traumatized young children. I yeah. know what's coming. <laughs> yeah, because that because it? that's yeah. that's what they and that's what they do. That's what adults do. Yeah, and then in the next post on their social media, they'll be going break the stigma. Yeah. You know, tr- <laughs> so schools true. need to become trauma informed, and like you know, children are not being treated properly. Schools need to mental health should be taught in schools. Right? It's posted by the same person who's absolutely bashing a young, traumatized. And when we say traumatized, by the way, we're not always talking about um, like a child that's been abused physically and sexually, which is again where we always go. Yeah. You know, it, it's a traumatized child can be somebody who is overly sensitive and is lacking an adult in their life that's able to meet those emotions. That that's going to cause an internal wounding. Um, but we're not, we're kind of not yet ready, or not even close to having those proper conversations, right? Where we look at a mental health struggle as what it actually is, because it's not, it's not somebody. It's often anyway, not somebody looking meek and mild and saying, "I feel anxious and I." And I don't know what to do. Although that happens, it's often uh, it's often the, in the behaviour, and you know, mental health struggles in in people is often family destroying, it's life destroying. These people, when you're traumatised or you're you're hurt in any way, you you you're you're so full of anger, frustration, fear, and hate that of course that's what you're acting out. You're hateful. You're spiteful. You're angry. Yeah, you're throwing chairs across the room. Of course you are. Right. And actually, when we listen to these people's stories, what they're doing makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. But we just treat the symptom. And I think it's a huge problem. It's a massive problem. I'm, I'm reading that Body Keeps the Score at the moment. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. And my understanding of trauma has completely shifted just in like the first couple of chapters. It's heavy going at the beginning. as you yeah. But if you can stick with it, it's it's really opened my eyes to what trauma is. And, you know, I've never even accepted things that have happened in my life as traumas until reading this book because it doesn't have to be anything big. It's just something that's happened that you've not processed properly and you've not felt properly. And then it's that is made worse by the fact that the adults in your life don't give you that platform to kind of... And and that might not be because they're voluntarily not giving you that platform. They might have a mental illness of their own or they might be dependent or an addict. Yeah, yeah. Capacity. Yeah, exactly. And look, we, that, and that means that you don't, this isn't about bad parenting or even poor parenting necessarily. I've traumatized my children. I've caused trauma within my children, within my sobriety. I went through stuff with my son who's very sensitive and I didn't realize that I couldn't handle the ways that I felt when I sensed his sensitivity. So I pushed it down in him. Not not consciously, but it took me a little while. I realized I was doing it. It's not because I'm a bad person. It's because I hadn't done that healing work on myself and it was having an impact on him, 
right? So that's why we we have to start at a place of compassion, right? Because trauma is trauma's not about what happens to me. Trauma is about what happens inside of me as a result of what happens to me. Yeah. It's about what my brain and my body does to try and cope with what's happened to me. So for example, I lost my dad in the way that I lost him to alcohol and, and, and you know, the overdose that he took. I was when I went back to school, the teacher, a lovely teacher who thought she was doing the best for me said, it might be best if you don't tell people how your dad died. Right now, if my dad had died in, let's say, a car crash, mm -hmm. I would have had a period of time off of school. And then when I returned to school, every adult there, all the adults, all the teachers and all the people around me, it would have been very open. Josh, we understand what's happened. This has been really difficult for you. It must be a difficult time. We're here. If you want to talk about it, come here. Yeah, we'll do this. You know, we're here for you. We're available. Right. So the, the opportunity for me to be traumatized by what happened is reduced by a hundredfold because if it was through addiction in the way that my dad was, then that's steeped in shame. It's pushed under the carpet. Nobody wants to talk about it. Let's maybe keep it a secret, right? And it's that then my body as a child then has to find a way to deal and cope with that. That's trauma. Not Some of the things that happen to us are traumatic. Yeah. That That's trauma. That's different, right? Trauma is about that. Trauma comes from the Latin word meaning wound. So we're talking about an internal wound, right? And I believe, by the way, it's impossible to raise a child, impossible for any, I don't care how good you are, to raise a child and not have caused some internal wounding in the same way as it's impossible to have raised a child without them at least falling over and get a few grazes. Yeah. yeah? It's natural. That's how the game works, right? But but the trauma, the internal traumas are all steeped in shame. They're all not talked about as, you know, as parents, we, uh, we want to get it right. We don't want to, we don't want to look at, uh, you know, the fact that we may have caused some of the, not caused it, but some of our actions may have been involved in that. And I think one of the hardest and most important things that I do in my life is recognize that 70% of the time as an adult, I get it way wrong. <laughs> As a, as a parent, yeah, and I, I, I just do. So how do you deal with that, Josh? Because I've got to be really honest, this last, like, 12 months in particular of my sober journey has probably been harder than the first year. Like, yeah. the first year it was like, yeah, I don't drink, life's amazing, I feel this, I feel that. This last year is a lot about talking about past traumas and feeling like I've made them mistakes as parent as a parent how do you deal with that without like feeling dead sad all the time <laughs> well firstly you have to celebrate the 30 percent. so the fact that you get it right 30 percent of the time i think is incredible the second thing that i do is i make sure that i spend time every day with the fact that i'm awake to this stuff my problems in my life, the, the biggest wounding, uh, the most longest lasting trauma, the hardest internal wounding that I experienced as a child for me to get over as an adult has been the fact that as a child, I never felt seen. The fact that as a child, everybody around me seemed to kind of be able to just get on with stuff and pretend it wasn't happening and it hurt me. And no adult ever stepped in ever at any point not because they were bad people, but, but just because they didn't have the capacity to do it. Nobody stepped in at any point and said, I, this is awful, this is hard, how you're feeling makes sense, and I'm sorry. Nobody ever did that. 
I do that with my kid, my kids, right? And I'll tell you now, I mess up more than most. Yeah, I'm very good at talking about this stuff, but when you put me in a family situation, right, and it, and and watch how trauma starts playing out when I'm seeking validation from people that I care about, I'm trying to be attached to them. I'm a, I'm messy. It's a mess. Um, so celebrating the thirty percent is important. Recognizing that I'm awake to this stuff and just pretending that I'm not like I used to. Don't get me wrong. Some days I wake up and I think what I'd give to go back to blissful ignorance yeah, <laughs> and, and not have this stupid awareness that I've dug so deep to get. Right. But, but that awareness is, is what will help um, create change in my, in my children's life. It's what helps me to be able to deal with the mistakes that I make as a human being. But then thirdly, uh, and probably most importantly, it's about self-compassion. And by the way, it's very easy, not easy. Um, it's easier to like myself when I do something really good. Yeah. There's no coincidence that I chased standing on a stage in front of people and having a big queue afterwards of people telling me how amazing it was. Yeah. And yeah. I, I chased that. Right. And, and I come away from that. And I think, wow, you're, you're brilliant. Right. <laughs> but, but, but how do I feel about myself when I mess up? Cause I'll tell you what, they, th those mess ups come a lot. How do I feel about myself then? Yeah. What, what, how do I speak to myself in my mind then, right? Where's my self-compassion then? Because it's those moments that make me human, right? Uh, the idea that, with the, the, that we can be a human being that's not full of flaws is in and of itself flawed. Yeah. Human, we are ultimately flawed. But, uh, we, we make mistakes. That is what makes us human, right? So I have to work on my self-compassion daily. I have to, uh, I have to understand that it's not about avoiding those mistakes and being a better person, right? It's not about that. It's about self-compassion for the person that shows up in my life today. And that's, that's hard because, you know, when you watch a family situation fall down around you and deep inside, you know, like I'll tell you now, I've been through some stuff recently with my kids so much of it's driven by my emotional avoidance. So much of it is driven by me not wanting to deal with it and just trying to push it back down and thinking, hopefully it'll be all right. And it doesn't because I'm avoiding the emotion. And until I face that out, it's never going to get better. Um, and I have to have compassion for that person that I am that shows up in my life today. I'm a human being um, who sometimes haven't, hasn't yet found a better way to deal with the ways that I feel. And so I'm going to forgive myself. And I think that's really important. It is important. It's so much easier said than done, done isn't it? It really yeah. is. And then it's like I'm the first person to tell somebody to, to tell forgive me. themselves, to be <laughs> kind to themselves, to tell them that they, they're just human, that the feelings are valid and that it's all right. And part it, of the human experience. And it, yeah, it's part of the human experience. It makes them what they are. And I'm so good at that. Yet sit me in a room with myself and it's just like, I'm so awful to myself. It's really, and I know what? I'm not on my own with it. What sort of things do you say to yourself? Oh gosh, Josh! Um, I've... Oh, come on, come on now! You started something, so you got to finish. I hate not being able to get things right, and I get annoyed at myself. I get frustrated at myself. I get frustrated that I tell people to be kind, and then I'm not. It's like I don't deserve that kindness from myself. That's it, it's 
that old I am not worthy, I don't say it because that's not how I talk to myself in my own mind, but that really... So what, what, when you talk to yourself in your own mind, just say one simple sentence that that, that voice in your head would say to you. Oh, you're so shit at that. Right. Why do you think, why do you think that part of yourself? So by the way, firstly, let's just be clear here. We're sensing that there's two parts of yourself there. There's yeah. the part that's hearing that. And then there's a the part that's saying that. Why do you think that part um, of yourself says that to you? I really don't know, Josh. Why do you think it would have said it to you when you was younger? Oh, you didn't deal very well with your emotion as a kid, did you? No, I never. I've never really dealt with emotion. I've just, I've, I've pushed everything down. I'm, I, I like to live in the now. <laughs> it's yeah. all about now. Let's. That's gone. There's nothing I can do about that now. Which is really weird because, as much as I say that, if I do something, it plays on my mind like all the time. So if I, if I, guilt, yeah, guilt's a big thing. But like, if I make a stupid mistake or say something stupid it plays on my mind all the time like you should have said it that way you should have said it that way that that's a big thing. okay so that's another voice right that's another voice part of yourself right that's beating on you right so there's a concept of internal family systems right it's by there's a guy called richard schwartz who's like a an old school therapist from i don't know early 90s i think uh, and he talks about internal family systems and he says that you have your core self which is you, who you are, which is that listening part of your brain, right? The part that hears it all, right? Now that part, if we've had any kind of uh, difficulties or dysfunction or anything that, that might have come up in our lives, yeah, that part of ourselves uh, loses the lead on us, right? That rather than being our full self, that part loses the lead. And then if you imagine that there's all different parts of yourself up to literally like eight, uh, that all play a part, but they're all trying to protect you. So that part that stands up and says to you, Lisa, why did you do that? You're stupid. See, see, we shouldn't do that. We, we're never going to do that again now because you, you always mess up. Yeah. If you can get into the self part that's listening to that, right. And you go, whoa, whoa, why, why are you saying this to me? And I know this sounds crazy that you're having this you internal dialogue. I've got such a good imagination. Yeah. So, so, so imagine holding communion with them, right. And you say to this part of your brain, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. Rather than being like scared of it and it taking over and it becoming polarized, you want to listen to that bit and start to calm it down. So you say, whoa, wh what, what are you talking about? And it says, wow, I'm saying you're useless and you shouldn't do this. This is why we shouldn't do it. And then you say, yeah, but why are you saying that to me? Why, why is that part saying it to you? Well, it's likely because I don't want to do that again because we always mess up. And then you can go, but hang on. We've got this other part of myself this strong, confident Lisa part who goes in and does the workshops, yeah? And we got this shit covered, right? <laughs> so just chill out, yeah? And I get that you're scared, right? But chill out because we got this other part and this part can hold, hold us. And then all of a sudden what you do is rather having these polarized parts of ourselves that are in there shouting at us and they're only trying to protect us. And once you realize everything is a response in your mind to try and protect you, then you can listen. Why is it trying to protect me? And that, so then you can get into the realms. And I've done this like in my own internal work, you get into, I've got like the, 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 the real sensitive inner child part of myself. He's always like, just don't go out, stay at home. Right. But it's scary out there. I've got the kind of 
ego part of myself who's like the big strong lad yeah and I tap in and I use that and I say to the inner child don't worry Josh Josh has got this locked down yeah all that and then you start to realize that the less I can make them polarized and know that they're all welcome they're all good parts of myself trying to help me then you can come into some some more kind of alignment whereas what people will often tell you is that in leave that inner critic don't listen to it tell it to shut up actually it's trying to help you yeah. So listen to it. Oh, I love that, Josh. Thank you. I'm, I'm <laughs> she will actually do all of that because, yeah, you will. I think um, that'll help a lot of people, though. I really do. Yeah. Got such a good imagination. I, I reckon I'll be really good at this game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's literally, it's literally that self-compassion thing. That's where it comes. It's about taking a second, take a step back. Hang on. What's what's being said here? Oh, you're useless. You're Hang, right, rather than being rather than being frightened of that, let's lean into it. Why am I stupid? Why am I useless? Why are you saying that? All right, okay, you're trying to protect me, but don't worry, I've got it. Yeah, and then and and, and you can bring yourself much back into care. And then that idea of self compassion, which is where we started with it, actually becomes more obtainable because you can come into that, and this is like reparenting stuff as well. You can come into that core self. And you can go, actually, hang on a minute. We've got this. Between us, we've got this, right? We might be messing up, but we've got it. I like the idea of between us, you know, rather than, oh, this is the negative voice and this is the positive voice. Yeah, I like right. the idea of, well, these are my voices. They're all yeah. my voices. I like the... Yeah, I like I like that. the idea of it. It's, it's something I think I've struggled with a lot, and I know other people do, because of the work that I do, I feel like quite a hypocrite sometimes like mm. trying to help people with this when I don't even do it myself it's really so I'm going to really use that thank you yeah but, but by the way most of us don't do it ourselves yeah <laughs> like I'm I'm telling you all these amazing things and I'm thinking God, I should start doing that again <laughs> Josh, I get it because that's exactly what I do. I yeah. was like, that was such good advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, listen, I give when I give talks. Sometimes people come back to me and they go, uh, they'll look at their bit of paper from where they've been making notes, and they'll go, they'll read something out. I go, oh, I like that. And they go, well, you said that, and I'm not. Like, I said that. They're like, yeah, and I'm like, fuck, I should do that. That's <laughs> so wild. I like that. Yeah. But I think that's the way it works. That's how it is. You know, you, you're normally helping the people that, you know, you're giving the advice that probably we should be taking. I know that's true for me anyway. Oh, true. Probably does help true. you though, doesn't it? When you're giving that advice to other people, you're like, yeah, I, yeah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I think that is probably a technique that I do. It, you know, like when we look at quotes on Instagram and our, and our pages on there and you look, and I look back from last year and I'm like, that is such good. Did I write that? Yeah. <laughs> So you kind of do give out what you need to hear, don't yeah, you? Or what so each is. other need to hear. Because sometimes I'll have told Lisa something on a Sunday and I'll be like, oh, this has happened and I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling, blah, blah, And I wake up Monday morning and I'll be like, you've got this. See the day. I'm like, <laughs> She's just like giving me a good tip. I'm like, yeah. Oh, yeah, you but also as well, it shows that we've got that wisdom part of ourselves in there. Yes. But sometimes if the part of ourselves that's scared and wants to tell us we're rubbish becomes too powerful, polarized it overpowers that wisdom side of us and then we lose it so mm -hmm. that's often why when we're teaching or we're you know we're training or we're interacting or whatever coaching whatever it may be that wisdom part of us is like oh, i've fucking got this this is my bag and it steps in and does it but then you'll have that realization where you're like well actually that's coming from me that's still a part of myself because i love your take it's very similar to this i love your take on um 
positive thinking and positivity just being another way of saying, I'm paraphrasing Josh, sorry, man up. Yeah. You know, like if you're just positive all the time, you're not actually dealing with the things that are making you feel sad. Yeah. Positivity is oh, positivity is great. Life, I can't even cope with this conversation. <laughs> I, I can't honestly. <laughs> I, I have got to say though, before Josh talks about that, this is what you do. Like if I put something I know, down, I've been happy being this for years, and the last, since I've decided and I read and hear all these things, I've never been as sad. So I, I'm like quite happy being positive and pushing it down. Leave me alone, go on, Josh. <laughs> but the reason, the reason you, the reason, and that makes total sense what you've just said right and if if you've kind of never dealt with the, the the sadness side of it then it may be that there's a lot of prolonged sadness that needs to come out right oh, that was gosh. definitely my experience this is why healing's not, not you know it, when, when, when online it's made out to be this kind of airy fairy fluffy stuff it ain't been that for me it's been tr- traumatic in itself right um but i think positivity, gratitude, they're all great things and they're things that we should practice, but they shouldn't, we shouldn't be using them to mask how we truly feel. My whole life, uh, I've always concentrated on gratitude and positivity throughout my whole life. And I reached the middle of my 20s, which is very lucky to have found out at that young age, really. Instead um, of you just now at 41, you mean? Well, you, well yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, there's a... Um, there's a, there's a, I can't remember a name, but there's a therapist who believes that we work in cycles of 13. So at 30, age 13 and then 26 and then 39, uh, roughly speaking, uh, is when your body will start to scream at you and go, we need to look at this stuff. So that makes sense. Um, but all my life, I re- like reframed experiences. Yeah. Uh, at least there was my, my dad was an alcoholic, but he was a hardworking man. There was always food on the table. Yeah. Um, uh, at least I had a dad for nine years. Nine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sexually abused. That's been mine for years. Yeah. Another one. Yeah. Oh, people in the other side of the world have got it way worse though. Right. All of that's great. Yeah. Uh, and it's true to a degree, but when it's used to mask how I'm truly feeling, then I'm always bubbling up with these emotions underneath me. Now, Emotions are energy in motion, yeah? So if, and you'll notice from the, the body keeps the score, I think a lot of this comes from there. But if we don't find a way to process that, that emotion and release it, then our body finds a way to do it for us because the energy goes down into our, into our bodies. We get tense, tight muscles. A lot of us do the shallow breathing all of the time. We don't realize that we need to take a breath. Uh, and then the body finds a way to deal with it. Addiction, uh, depression, bad back, headache, Skin problems, yeah. When I'm keeping an emotion in, my elbows go sore, yeah. The skin dries up on them. Emotions for me. Um, but but I, I think the way that what what happens is, uh, so there's a guy called John Bradshaw and he talks about the work of somebody else whose name I can't remember, but he says that we have three stages in the brain. So you have the reptilian part of the brain, right? Which is the part of the brain that like helps us repeat stuff. You look at a lizard, it comes out of its cave, goes and gets food and goes back in its cave and does that every day. Yeah. Then you have the second part of our brain, which is the emotional part of our brain that develops second, right? That's where we have all of our feelings and all of like, you know, sadness, all of the range of emotions that we have. And then you have this third part of our brain, which is the rational part of our brain, which is where we've got used to living as human beings, right? But what a lot of us do is we get into that rational part of our brain and we use rationalization as a way of shutting ourselves off from our feelings. So 
I don't feel sad about my dad being a drunk because he worked really hard, right? I'm rationalizing, chopping myself off from the feelings. And I think what happens to a lot of us is we live up in that rational part of our brain and we're completely shut off from our feelings. And some of us, and I know I do this and fall back into doing this, something amazing happens in my life and everyone around me is like, this is amazing. And I'm like, yeah, I know I should be happy. I know I should be loving it. But my real truth is I'm, re I'm playing at it because I don't feel it. Yeah. And that's because I've shut myself off from my feelings. Now, if I want to get back into those feelings, yeah, I've got to open up that can of worms. Yeah. And a bit like you said, Lisa, there's some other shit that's coming out of there that I don't want to, I don't want to deal with. And that's why healing's messy. It's, it's horrible. Doing the work is, uh, as freeing as it is, it, it's about clearing, it's about original pain. It's about coming back and being able to get angry with my dad as the nine-year-old kid that I was or the six-year-old kid that I was. It's about going back and releasing that time when I never got sad, when this happened when I was a kid, because it's all in there. Yeah. And, uh, still even, within like uh, NHS practice and stuff like that. Some of the, some of the methods that we're giving people to deal with their mental and emotional health is based on rationalizing. It's based on shutting yourself off from the feelings and it's a problem. Counseling is when I think back to the counseling that I had um, 18 months ago, following my miscarriage, a lot of that was about, and why do you think you feel that way? Not actually exploring the feeling as in, you know, what is that feeling you're feeling and where is it coming from? Just get rid of but it. yeah, like, why are you feeling like that? Oh, that could just be because of this. It doesn't always have like a clear cut reason as to why you're feeling that, that from the now. Yeah. yeah. Something from way back that's triggered a memory and sent you into a downward spiral, which I know is what happened to me. And it wasn't my counseling that actually, and I know this will be different for some people, but it wasn't my counseling that actually helped me. It was being able to talk to my best friend, my husband, and mm. have those open conversations. And may I say, I think that's why I may be, I'm not that typical child of alcoholic as an adult, because I have always talked about how something's made me feel. And I have always had an adult in my life, although it wasn't my parents, that I could go to and cry to. And I think that's massive, you know. It's huge. It's mass. My it's answer for me was that woman. And I used to go and say, I hate, you know, I hate this. I hate that. And cry on her. And I honestly think she saved me from a lot worse. Without, without question. So they say the one, uh, one piece of research that we, that we're sort of discovering when it comes to trauma is that one nurturing adult in your life, one emotionally available nurturing adult in your life is enough to undo so much trauma. So when we talked earlier about it being some, you know, it's not what happens to me, it's what happens inside of me. If you're getting to explore and release those emotions with an emotionally available adult, then, the, then, then it's happening. And this is why, uh, when you look at the world that we live in today, by the way, this is why it's so hard on parents now, because once upon a time we used to live in communities. Well, we lived in tribes originally, right? And if I wasn't emotionally available for my kids and my wife wasn't emotionally available for my kids, someone else in the tribe was emotionally available. So it didn't matter. And then, and then we used to have community and within our schools, we had lots of different like youth clubs and emotionally available adults. And slowly over the years, we've stripped all of that back. And now if I'm not emotionally available for my kids, we don't know the neighbors the teachers are busy trying to teach English, maths and science. And there ain't no other adult that's emotionally available there unless there's an auntie or an aunt or whatever it may be. Right. So we've removed all that community and tribes. And uh, a lot of people will say 
the best places to grow up in the world nowadays is back in the tribes where there's lots of different adults that, you know, it takes a village to raise a child and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that, you know, that, that makes total sense, uh, that, that your auntie would have had that bigger impact on you. I can, and it, that's come to light just through the Nicola training, just realising that actually I'm talking about these memories quite blase. Um, but that's because I've already processed them, a lot of them. Yeah. I have actually yeah, yeah. lived through them with an adult. And it's something you kind of, I hope you don't mind me saying this too late, I'm going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> something you kind of struggle with, if I do visit my past, we're very different like that, aren't we? So I visit my past and I kind of pour it out. And even though you'll listen and you're a really good listener, you'll kind of go, I'm just staying in the now. You'll openly say it. My instinct is to avoid it. Like, why, why, what's the point in going back there? But looking at it, I suppose I never really had an adult to discuss it with. Like, my, because I was an only child and my family was so tiny, they, none of them, this basically just been me and my mum, really. Um, so there's never been that adult. So my mum was really good with, if you're feeling angry, go to your room, scream, hit it out, you know, shout if you want to. And she was saying that because, you know, that was it. But that's how I deal with it. So any emotion is, leave me on my own. I'll go to my room. I'll scream. I'll hit it out. I'll cry. Don't I've phone just, me. Don't text me. Leave I do, me. Yeah, I cannot handle it. And like last week when I was having a rough week and Alex is messaging me and my instinct is like, we well, just fuck off and leave me alone. Well, hang on a minute. That wasn't her instinct. That's what she said. <laughs> yeah, but... Some why people are pecking me to talk about it. I'm like, just leave me. So, but you're saying that you're not dealing with it, but you still do that. You go to your room, you scream and you shout and you let it out. Well, no, not really. I just, no, I don't. No, she doesn't. She goes, <laughs> don't text me. I need to just be on my own and come to terms with it. And all that happens is she'll quietly simmer and then eventually she won't get over it or get through no, it. I do, I just do. I'll, I'll go for walks and I, yeah, I, I, need, I feel like I need that time on my own just to kind of process the information or to kind of, and then what it'll end with is me going, right, Lisa, that is enough. Sort yourself out, brush your hair, have a shower, get up. <laughs> and yeah, but then there might not, you know, to me, with what you're saying there, there doesn't sound anything hugely wrong with that. It's just different. So, oh, like, <laughs> but but it's but it's just, when I say it's different, it's just different to other people. So I, I'm, I recharge on my own. If I'm emotionally overwhelmed, you better get everyone out of the house and just leave me. Whereas my wife, yeah, uh, she needs people around her. And I, when we looked, when we looked at, uh, if you look at our like marriage when we first met when I started struggling or I was overwhelmed or whatever it was, yeah, all of a sudden, her family's here for dinner and I'll be sat at a table thinking, thinking, can you not see that I'm struggling? Like, I'm struggling and you've got everyone round here. Like, you're taking them. But on the flip side, when I sensed my wife was struggling, I'd get the kids and I'd go, come on, let's go and take the dog out. Right? And then my wife is sat there thinking, can he not see I'm struggling? And he's just took everyone away. And what you have to realise is that for me, I need people away from me. My wife, if she's struggling, let's get people around there because that's how she recharges. People around there talking, being in the moment, doing that. Some people recharge alone and some do it with people around them. So it is about finding what works for you. And it's not, it's not the same for, for, for everyone, right? But what's important is the awareness piece, right? If you are 
shutting everyone off, giving it two hours and just pushing it down as much as you can. That's different to getting rid of everyone and spending a day processing it. I'm feeling it. I'm pissed off. It's coming out of me. I like to do this alone. That's yeah. So the difference is the awareness, right? And so, and there's no right or wrong way, by the way. And this is why the societal conversation at the moment has become very much, if you're struggling, talk, reach out, get people around you. Right. And that message doesn't resonate with me because it's not what works for me. So, so it's important to understand that we're all different in that sense. Right. So there's no right or wrong way. And And this is healing at its core. Healing is just awareness. Yeah. And that awareness will mean that in, if you keep that awareness and you keep consistently checking in with yourself, questioning everything, being curious about everything. Yeah. In three months time, you'll have a completely different view on it because you're always being curious and you're going, and my healing journey over the last eight years has been a series of saying, I do this. And then after a few months going, Oh my God, you know, that thing that I used to say that everyone should do because it's the way forward. Don't do that shit. Cause it's no good for you. Yeah. And then I'll, and now you should do this. And then I do that. And then three or four months later, I'm like, Oh, you know, that stuff I said, oh, don't do that. It's no good. Yeah. Because that's what I do. And that's, but that's healing. Healing's not this like linear journey. It's just a tangled mess. <laughs> it's so true. And in an ideal world, I guess what we'd be doing is this work. This is what we should be teaching in schools, isn't it, really? We should be teaching kids how to process what's going on in the now so it doesn't develop into the messes that developed as Josh, Lisa and Alex. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> If we were taught this at the time, and you know, to a certain extent, like I just said, I was, I had the anti there, although I didn't realise that's what I was doing. But if we all had that kind of way of dealing with things in our own way and taught that it's okay to be alone, it's okay to scream into your pillow, it's okay to go and talk to somebody, then maybe there wouldn't be quite so many damaged individuals traumatized ad- traumatized children uh, disguised as adults which is the society that we find ourselves with now yeah. I, I i think it's even easier than that i would say every friday at school tell all the teachers they don't have to teach anything yeah and the kids get to go in on a friday and just be kids and they get to pick the first hour they might all watch a film and mess about and do what they want and just well, be children and the teacher just gets to float about in the classroom and watched, that day. <laughs> and, watch, yeah, and watch the film. Yeah. And by the way, a lot of kids struggle at school because of that though. Because, because they can't, they, they're not, they're not built. They're not existing on this planet to sit in silence for eight hours a day and, and do that work. They're not built. Watch how many kids thrive when they leave school. Cause they're not built for school. So what, you know, we've talked about, Somewhere. And we and we should just remove so because the, the teachers are amazing. You don't go into teaching, by the way, and you'll know this. You don't go into teaching for anything else other than the love of it because they're overworked and underpaid and overstretched and all of that. So, so you're not in it for the money. You're in it because you love it. That's the only reason, and that's why so many teachers leave the industry, right? Because they don't get to. Because I was no longer teaching children. I was teaching subjects for figures. Exactly right. Exactly. So yeah. remove that. And it, and it, it just made me so internally turmoiled that I I know I was a good teacher. I was the teacher that would spot at the back of the class, somebody's quieter on that day than usual, hold them back for five minutes at the end and say, what's going on? 
and not let my next class in until that kid had had a chance to say, I've got this going on, or come back and see me in an hour and we'll make time. And I, I know I was good at that, but then there's no time for that even anymore because no. so crammed with, you know, and there's some really good teachers out there. I'm not criticising. There are some really good teachers and really good schools that allow yeah. this, but only within the certain capacity they're allowed. Well, exactly. You're so right. I mean, and something else that would do as well is it would it would allow a good teacher to spot social problems. You know, mm-hmm. who's not socialising? Who's not used to being having their friends? Who, who's lonely? You're so right. Because all you see is who's in class. You make them work in pairs or groups. They go out and then there could be somebody sat in on their own with no friends and you don't spot that. Exactly. And uh, look, my experience of going into schools is that the main majority of teachers are pretty amazing, but their hands are tied by what we make them have to achieve. Yeah. <laughs> so we're literally, you know, we've got these amazing person-centered people, people, yeah. you know, working in schools for the love of it because they want to help children. And we tie their hands behind their back with all of the academia stuff that we need to get, that we need to get them in. That, by the way, in today's world makes no sense because most children of the age of 10 or 11 years old will leave school for a job that doesn't even exist yet. So I don't know why we think that we can arm them with what they need to do it because it, because the world's changed so much, you know, we're still teaching as if the internet doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's it's true. True. I think it'll change it within this time. You, you know, um, when you see this at its best, it's at the end and the beginning of a term. So when the kids aren't in and you're doing your teacher training and your intentions and you really mean it, I'm going to build this in, I'm going to make sure I do more of this, I'm going to have more one-to-ones, I'm going to... And then yeah. week two of term one, you're like, I can't yeah. do it, you know? yeah. And I can't tell you how many schools I work with and they go, yeah, we do this stuff. We do this amazing stuff, but uh, Ofsted are in next week. So we've got to go back to doing... It's just ridiculous. It's mad. It? It's mad. So before we finish, Josh, because um, I think we are pretty much up to time, um, could you tell us a little bit about what work you're doing with NACOA and mm-hmm. where people can find you? Because I want to talk for at least another hour, don't you? <laughs> do you know? Has it been your favourite? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, can we make sure that we get the favourite pie in? Otherwise, all I'm going to do is leave and think, she said it to everyone else. Are you ready? Here we go. This has been my favourite podcast. It really has. I genuinely, genuinely mean it. No, see, I don't believe that. No, but that's not. Oh. I, I'm not. I do believe it, but I didn't believe the way. Do you it know was what said. I have really enjoyed it, and I would quite happily talk to you for the rest of the day. Well, I'm going to choose to believe it. Yeah, do you know what I mean? That I don't believe that it was. You know what I mean? She was saying that. I'm just making me feel stupid. No, just saying that. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What was the question? What am I doing with Nakoa? So I'm an ambassador for Nakoa now. I've been with them for like five years. At the moment, a lot of what I do is awareness raising, but we're starting to do some more stuff in schools again. I'm doing a, I'm training a lot of professionals at the moment uh, with Nakoa. So training uh, police services and uh, teachers and schools and uh, children's services of all different kinds. Uh, and then obviously we're doing the training now as well, which uh, a lovely lady called Steph actually delivers. I sort of just show up and talk too much. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing with Nakoa. You can find Nakoa at nakoa.org.uk. Uh, they do some amazing stuff online. Um, yeah, so that's it. That's that's what that's the Nakoa in a nutshell. And then your own stuff you've got going on, and where are you? 
Yeah, so I work as a resilience coach. Um, so I work with individuals and organizations uh, globally now, um, just to live, delivering resilience training, which is, I call it emotional resilience. So it's understanding our emotions on a deeper level and what that looks like and how to process them. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about today. I'm Josh underscroll FFW on Instagram, which is probably the best place to find me, but all my links are on joshconnelly.co.uk. And we'll put them in the right up to the podcast as well to make sure people can find you, Josh. It genuinely Perfect. has been a pleasure. I know we've both been really I do. I feel really bad now. So, I didn't mean it like that. It's really playing on my mind. <laughs> no, don't worry. Don't worry about it. I'm okay for you to coach you after this. So I to <laughs> replaying it and I'm like, I didn't mean it like that. Right, Lisa, quickly. Lisa, quickly. Think about it. That voice, the saying, yeah. what's it trying to do? Protect you, right? Yeah, so you can calm it down now. Say, Josh is pretty sensible. He knows this shit. He knows he's the best one that's been on. So, the, no, I'm joking. You genuinely, honestly, you've helped me so much in just like this 45 minutes. So I know that people are going to get a lot from it. They really are. So Good. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, I and I, by the way, just quickly, <laughs> I, I would say as well, I, I re, I'm a big fan of what you, you're doing genuinely. And I don't just say that on the podcast. I've said it a lot of times before. I think it's a space that's really needed um, uh, for people that want to kind of get sober or, or think about getting sober. I genuinely think it's a space that's been needed for so long. Uh, and I think it's incredible what you do. And you're, you're both infectious in your kind of want to learn and, and progress in your sobriety. Oh, thank, thank you, you. That means so much coming from you. It really does. Yeah, it does. Thanks, Josh. We'll see you. Oh, well, I'm hoping we'll speak to you really soon. You will. In about a week. <laughs> <laughs>